sharing, and so is a great story. Welcome to the Kiwi Foodcast, the show where we sit down with chefs, food businesses, food writers and more to share the stories behind the food they serve. I'm your host, Persan Patel, and this show is brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Let's dig in, everyone. Welcome back, everyone. Today on the show, we have Singapore-born and Auckland-based Connie Clarkson. Connie has been cooking and writing all her life. She is the author of Asian Flavors, and in the mid-1990s, she owned and operated Auckland's The French Cafe. Connie is also a regular contributor and food judge for Metro Magazine and currently is the head of commercial place operations at Auckland Council's Panuku Development. On the show today, we talk about Connie's incredible food journey, how food is the cornerstone of a thriving neighborhood and the amazing work that she is doing at Panuku. So without further ado, let's begin. Hi Connie, how are you? I'm very good person and thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. So um, let's start at the very beginning, which I think in um, the scope of your food journey is really, really early on. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your childhood. Like, how is it like growing up in Singapore? Is there any early food memories you could share with us? Well, yes, that's taking me back, isn't it? Um, Singapore, growing up in Singapore was pretty magical. Um, and I put it down to my home and my family. I grew up in a multi-generational home, which was probably quite normal in Singapore, but certainly not quite so here in New Zealand. And I think that that's what formed the basis of a lot of what I think and do and try and pursue in life. Um, I lived uh, with my parents and my father's mother um, initially, and then to the left, and um, once, sort of when I was about 12, I think, that we moved into my maternal grandmother's home. So at that stage, I had, let me count, my great-grandmother, uh, my grandmother, my parents, and myself. So we had four generations wow. in one household. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you're growing up, you don't ever think about the value that life brings you until you get to be a little bit older. But when I look back on that, the richness of um, of having you know, two or three generations older than me in that same household was, was it, it, it was priceless because I'm now a grandmother and I just know the, the way that I relate to my grandchildren. I was pretty different to the way that I related to my children and I'm so much more patient. Their patience with me, my great-grandmother and my grandmother, was extraordinary. Um, you know, they would never, there would never be a crossword. Um, and they taught me so much. And so, and, and, and I learned how to respect and love, um, the wealth of knowledge that generations bring. So I think that that probably was so special. And that's what formulated a lot of what I think is valuable today. 
Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I come from a multi-generational family myself, having lived in India at my husband's in-laws place. So we had my husband, my in-laws, and then his grandmom still living with us. And um, yeah, it was never like, I think, unfortunately, his grandmom wasn't there for when our kids came around. But I just remember, you know, having this easy access to like stories and um, just, you know, the way things were. And it's, yeah, like kind of stepping back into history and then forward. And yeah, it's a beautiful experience. And you're never lonely, right? Yeah. But he's there. And it's that feeling. I remember now that, you know, it's that feeling of security. That, mm. that feeling really safe within the bosom of the family home. Um, that is, um, and also a feeling that you, there's always somebody there to actually s- ask somebody about and get an answer to something. Yeah, and so that's true. That, that 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 feeling of security and knowing that you know life is not impossible. Whereas I think that sometimes in our nuclear family setup that we have around here, um, it's very insular, you know, and um, you could not talk to your neighbor if you didn't want to. Whereas in a multi-generational family home uh, that I grew up in, there was no choice. <laughs> there was no choice. You just had to talk to people. <laughs> there was no choice. And that's what's so fantastic about, um, about my childhood. Awesome. So tell me, Connie, what brought you to New Zealand and what was it like back in the day? New Zealand, I came to New Zealand to boarding school. I arrived in 1976 and that was because I probably did not fill the mould, fit the mould um, in those days of um, of Singapore education, which meant that you needed to be either an accountant, a lawyer, or a doctor. And I tended to be a little bit more creative. Um, I was interested in food. And so um, it was an idea of my parents that out fare better elsewhere. And so they selected New Zealand and they selected Dunedin. And I came to Dunedin Columbia College Boarding School when I Wow, was so from like high, I mean, even then Singapore would have been much more fast-paced than what Dunedin would be, I presume. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, shops were still um, opened at um, 9, 10 o'clock at night. Uh, we had, of course, a cuisine that stemmed from right around the world and – you know, there was fashion, I remember that, hotels and the nightlife. And Dunedin, in those days, in 76, I think New Zealand um, did a 9 to 5.30 economy. That was a Monday to Friday. And come 5.30 on a Friday, all the shops shut and nothing opened again until 9 o'clock in the morning on Monday. And so life was extraordinarily different. Yeah, I remember. I mean, I moved here in 2002, but my first uh, impression coming off the airport was like, oh, my God, there's no buildings here. <laughs> like, Where are the buildings? <laughs> Skyline wasn't um, all that crowded in those days in Dunedin. There really wasn't a skyline, really. So um, tell us a little bit about like your early adventures in New Zealand's hospitality scene. Like once you finished off at um, boarding school, like how did you come to owning and operating the French Cafe? 
I think I was always a restaurant busting to happen, even from my young days. I remember back in Singapore, I'd um, play at restaurants. And so I've always been fascinated by that and um, fascinated by food because I grew up in the bowels of my grandmother's kitchen, which is some of my fondest memories as well. And so food has always been there in my life. Um, and I had reached a stage, I think it was 35, and um, young enough to take a risk. And knowing that if the risk did not pay off, I was still young enough to start again. And so um, I decided that restaurant, you know, if I didn't do it, I think I would live to regret. It would be one of those bucket list things that I would be really regretful of not having explored. So the opportunity came to start a restaurant. Um, and and we looked at several options, but the French buying an existing restaurant was um, one of the preferred options. And of course, the iconic French cafe came up for sale, and um, we took a deep breath and jumped in. I was very young and very naive, I think, at the time. But fueled with dreams, I think that the food industry are fueled the best of of food industry here are fueled by people who have wonderful dreams that they need to fulfill, and I was certainly one of those. I agree with you on the naivety part and the dreams part as well, because often you just don't actually know how hard it's going to be. But that's actually a good thing because I think if you knew, then you may not actually do it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Although we also think, you, but you also need to do it well, you know, in order to survive. Mm. Um, you're, you can only hang on to your naivete for a little while. I think that you hang on to your dream, though. I mean, you don't want to let that go. But you need to fast become really knowledgeable about how you're going to survive if you are going to survive at all. Yeah. So how was the overall experience for owning and operating the French Cafe? And why did you kind of decide to go down the buying a restaurant option as compared to kind of starting something of your own? Um, I really can't remember all that clearly, except for the fact that um, buying an existing business meant that you did not have to, I think at the time, go through the pain of, of starting something up. Um, I had a couple of business partners at the time um, who were also supportive of that notion. And so we did. So this was in um, the mid-90s. And uh, I think uh, at that stage, it was, the America's Cup was also the first, one of the first major events that um, alighted in, in Auckland. And that actually drew all the business from um, Simon Street and, you know, Upper or, you know, middle to upper Auckland down to the waterfront. So it was it was hard going. It was really hard going. But I just loved it. I loved I loved um, in having people walk in that door. I loved being able to put great food in front of them. And we had one of the best chefs that are still in Auckland. That's Kate Fay, and she produced extraordinary food. Um, I loved it that people were enjoying themselves. I like the notion of hospitality and what 
good hospitality can actually deliver in the lives of the people who come to join us. And so that was quite something. And I still love it till to this day. And I, and I guess through that, I found people whom, whom I knew instinctively and intrinsically. I made some of the best friends that I've got now through that industry. So, you know, I, I will always be grateful for my time in that. Yeah. And I think it's so beautiful to see that, you know, the French cafes to this day is still kind of going on. So it's kind of like almost that, you know, you're part of Auckland's history in a, in a way. Very small part. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in addition to that, I saw that you've also written a book. So can you tell me what made you want to write that book and also like why write it when you did and how that experience was? I would have been in New Zealand for a number of years. I'd become a mum. I had teenage children. Um, I'd always cooked at home. We always had Asian food at home. And the one thing I've always regretted is that I never, um, I'm not good at Chinese and I don't speak the language and, I, and, I've, and I've not taught my children how to speak Chinese either. And so I worried about um, their legacy, the legacy of the cultural legacy I was ever going to leave them. And so I, I, I hand wrote a recipe book for my girls. Um, I, I can't remember. They would have been 16 maybe. And um, that's what started the book itself. But I can't actually lay claim to pushing a book through and getting it done. I was um, I was doing Top of the Morning on Radio New Zealand at the time with Brian Edwards, and we sort of just talked about those ideas. Um, and then um, the the opportunity really came when. I was on a food writers pan, a, a writers festival panel about food um, in the early days, um, and that panel was chaired by the wonderful Alexa Johnson. And um, through our talking, somehow or another, she sort of knew that I penned some recipes, and in her introduction. To to me on stage, you know, apart from, you know, everything that she said about me, she also said, and this woman's got a recipe book in here. If any of you publishers in the audience wants a unique one, please come and talk to her. And when I finished the panel and I went down the stairs, there was Renee Lang, my editor, who was then with New Holland Publishers. And the rest, as they say, is history and Asian Flavors was born. It's purely accidental. I don't know that I'd ever do it again because it's like giving birth. <laughs> <laughs> but it was something that I was so continue to be proud of, really touched that people still remember it. And it's part of the legacy that I've left for my children. Yeah, I love the part that you said about legacy for children, because I mean, I started contemplating about writing a book just when I had my kids as well. And um, especially like you say, having moved to like a foreign country where you're kind of away from the traditions that they would normally just kind of be immersed in food seems to be a way that 
you can carry it forward. Mm. Yeah. That's true. Um, and and it's the basis of what home is. You know, I think that some of the best food in the whole world comes from a domestic kitchen. It comes out of the tastes um, that you remember when you were little. It comes out of that feeling of security because you know that when you go home, you're going to get the food that you want and that you've come to love, you know. And um, to make a record of that is, is more important now than ever before, I imagine. Yeah. And do you think that in this age of YouTube, cookbooks would still remain relevant? Yep. I think it's more than ever before. Um, because. Um, Cookbooks are more than just a book with recipes on it, I don't think. Um, cookbooks are about it's – it's a travel guide. It is a story about families. Cookbooks are about friends. Um, it's about an escape from reality. It's stories about people. It's a record of neighborhoods. It's a history book. It's a record of society, and unlike history books and unlike books about social anthropology, these these books are drawn together by one common factor, and that's how people eat. Um, and I don't know that there's anything that actually replaces that. Um, and there is something very tactile. Well, I'm a book lover anyway, so, you know, you're preaching to the converted. There is something about holding a book in your hand and thumbing through those pages that a YouTube clip cannot replace. Yeah, you know? I agree with you. Because I, oh, every time I open, like, a cookbook, I'm just, like, I, like, flick through the pages and I'm like, oh, my God, I want to cook this and I want to make this and I want to make this. And I never get that kind of excitement on YouTube. No, you, no, you don't. Although YouTube's really very convenient, though. You know, yeah. you, you do get to it to actually find out how to do something. You I agree. Really, you really want to get down into the nitty-gritty about what it is or where it's come from or how it has come about that this dish or that ingredient um, has played an important part in the life of the globe. You can't find that in a YouTube clip, I don't think. Yeah, though I must say um, food blogs are kind of doing that in-between nature of it because I think you can kind of go into a little bit more of that storytelling on a food blog and the added benefit of it is that I guess it's like an online index, right? Like at least people will be able to find it. Mm. Definitely. The internet has actually, um, and social media especially, has played a very large part in um making information accessible, making information accessible quickly, um, and also making information move at pace. Sometimes I worry that, that uh, 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 of the information moving at pace that we lose the sense of, the, le the sense of leisure and the sense of... Um, uh, 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 of delving back into the past and really loving what was there because mm -hmm. that's what informs the future. I think there are two, the, the, the two ways of thinking about it. I don't know. I don't have a firm opinion. I just have an instinct that day of the cookbook is not over yet. Mm -hmm. And 
I uh, found it curious where you said that you didn't really speak Chinese to your kids, but you still almost daily cooked Asian food at home. Mm -hmm. So could you like talk a little bit about the Asian food landscape in New Zealand? Like, how was it like maybe when you pinned down those recipes and how do you feel it has changed now? In 1976 in Dunedin, we had one or two Chinese, we had one Chinese restaurant and then takeaways and the quintessential Chinese meal was chow mein or chop suey. And, you know, um, that was... Well, Indian Chinese has a dish called chop suey, so, that, so that's no, interesting. No. Um, and also the, the, the complexity of ingredients and the availability of ingredients certainly weren't there. I mean, I, I, I always tell the story that when I cooked a curry, I had to um, reconstitute desiccated coconut with whole milk in a pot to actually get coconut milk to make a curry. And that, mm. was, that was the only way we could do it because coconut milk and cream wasn't available then. And you look at it now, you've got low-fat, high-fat, cream, milk, imported, local. It's, it's a... Organic, non-organic, you know, and that's and that's how far we've come, really. Um, and the fresh herbs and spices, lemongrass, Vietnamese mint, chilies, uh, Chinese ingredients, Indian ingredients, Sri Lankan ingredients, anywhere, and it's amazing. So, I think that travel um, has changed. Um, the way that we eat and the way that we actually love food migration has changed it too. And so there is no comparison between then and now. Um, and also moving up to Auckland was um, a big deal too because Auckland in those days, when we got here, it was 1990, so it was 20 years ago. Um, it certainly was um, in terms of the different types of, of food that we could actually get, let alone ingredients. So. Um, it's changed a lot, huge, huge amount. Yeah. I remember my first exposure was, well, because India has its own kind of offshoot of Chinese food is what we call Indian Chinese, just kind of more spicier. And I don't actually think it's got anything to do with Chinese food. But um, yeah, and then I came here and there was just this totally different kind of food. Um, and I was like, oh, that's not Chinese because that's not the Chinese I grew up eating. But, but even, yeah. even 20 years ago here in Auckland, the Chinese food was um, already well advanced. And we had, you know, the likes of Empress Gardens, Pearl Garden, um, Food Alley, Mercury Plaza was still around. I remember Mekong, um, the, um, the Vietnamese food was there. Mm. Um, and But what was missing was um, the cheap and cheerful. I mean, in those days... Really, dining out was um, not as adventurous as it is now. Certainly, food trucks were so rare. Um, it really, I mean, the term food truck probably wasn't coined until 10 years later. Um, mm. And so I made it my... I made it my life's work to draw the attention of two, you know, the, the, the cheaper more exciting um, indigenous food that we found around Auckland in those days. That's true, because I don't think Auckland ever really had like a street food culture or anything prior to like even yeah. 10 years ago. 
No, it, it really didn't. I remembered um, when uh, Simon Farrell Green, who uh, was writing those, he was a maverick in his day too. He said to me, um, I'm doing um, a cheap and cheerful article and can you help me? I think this might have been for the Herald. I can't remember what paper it was. And I said, well, the only way to do this is you have to come with me, young man. Spend two hours with me and I'll take you out eating. And we went to Food Alley, Mercury Plaza, and there was a another um, there was another food hall on Queen Street at the time. And I just made him eat hot pot. I made him eat mee goreng. I made him eat laksa, um, curries, and, you know, all those things that cost in those days under 10 bucks. But, mm. man, it was good. Um, and, you know, and, and not very well known at that time. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I got started into making sure that um, in daylighting great food, yeah. So my next question is, when are you taking me, Connie, for a <laughs> food walk? And let me know whenever you want me to free up two or three hours to come eat with you. Never my schedule is really free. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that you've also chaired like the Lewisham Awards and contributed to Metro Magazine. So can you tell us a bit about the importance of food writers and why we need to, you know, celebrate such excellence? Well, um, I have no, I know, I have no real answers, but just many ways of observing about um, the job of a food writer. I think there's a fine line between daylighting, encouraging, and celebrating uh, what's great in food and the people who actually produce the food. Um, and there's a fine line between all that. And criticizing and destroying lives. And I think that, um, you know, it's a, it's a responsibility that one can't take lightly if one is going to actually write about food. I think you need to really understand that the food is one thing, but it's the people behind the, the food that you're writing about is the true subject of it all. And sometimes I think that our food writers forget that. Mm -hmm. um, and besides, everyone is a critic these days. I mean, social media has made it so easy for anyone to get on and give an opinion. And so I, I guess um, to answer that question, I think that um, I look at writing about food as something that is that needs to be really carefully and respectfully done. Um, there are very few people who go into a food business without first having a dream. Um, and wanting success is, you know, you never go into a dream without wanting to succeed. And and the more the independent the business, the more intense that dream. And so when we actually write about somebody else's dream, there is that huge responsibility to do it justice. Um, That's so true. You know, and I've sat through now for the past two years through the Kitchen Project hearing um, conversations from these brave people um, who want to start up food businesses. And I always come away feeling 
firstly really privileged that they've shared their dream with us, but also so admiring of how brave they are, you know, because a lot of these people don't know anything about food business. They don't know anything about business. They just know that they have got something in the pit of their stomach that says, I've got to do this. And so we need to actually help them rather than destroy that dream. And so I've probably wandered off topic really about... Um, no, I agree because I, I feel like to me there's almost like a difference between like a food writer and like a food reviewer. Mm-hmm. To me, the former is more kind of... They're just genuinely passionate about the food, where it comes from. Like for me, when I feel like I'm writing about food, it's more about wanting to document, you know, those pieces of history like you mentioned before. It's less about the kind of, oh, I went to this restaurant and had X, Y, Z experience. That's right. That's right. And um, and it's only in documenting things faithfully that, um, you know, the future generations are going to actually know what we used to eat or what we ate um, and how to cook it yeah. and the provenance of ingredients and the wonderful people that grew, you know, the vegetables or the magicians that were able to actually understand how one thing becomes another. Um, it's it's it, it's an amazing it's an amazing thing, food. Yeah. Um, and we'll always be fascinated by it. I think that's because we can't live without it, right? Yeah. My grandmom used to say that food is like the only recession-proof um, kind of business. Like, not in the sense of like, of course, hospitality institutions will come and go. But I think what she meant was that you know everyone will need to eat. So in that mm. sense, it's not something that's kind of going to go off trend. Mm. No, no, everybody needs to eat in one way or another, and yeah. it's also a way that we record who we are and what where we've come from. Yeah. Definitely. So it feels like your role at Panuku is kind of like the ultimate culmination of all the experience you've had in the food industry so far. But can you tell us maybe, you know, like how you got into this role and for our listeners, what exactly it is that you do? It's a job of a lifetime. Um, and and I am so grateful to um, all the people that I've met along the way that's made things possible. And I'm so grateful that there is a city called Auckland that we actually can help build, which is what urban regeneration is all about. And that is what Panuku does. So Panuku is the urban regeneration agency for Auckland. Uh, and it's within, within its walls, it's got a bunch of the most extraordinarily dedicated, kind and... Um, really smart people who actually have the best um, the best of Auckland City at heart. And that's why I love being where I am. The job that we have is um, it's, it, it's more, you know, there is so much work to do in our city that it's, there's going to be work for generations to come. And it's it's about making sure that the city can survive into the future in the best way possible. My job at Panuku began in the early days, and um, 10 years ago, actually, in, um, with the then Waterfront Auckland, when we uh, were starting to curate Winyard Quarter. 
And the the job then was to make sure that Winyard Quarter was was able to attract all the development that you see today. Um, in terms of town centre regeneration, um, the things that, that I cover in my job is looking after town centres and so making sure that the, the main street actually survives um, through the process of regeneration. We look at contributing to social economic growth um, in terms of making sure that, you know, social procurement is is available, growing social capital with our partners, um, including AT and um, and AT and all the council and community organizations that we work with. We we look into um, retail and local economic development strategies. Uh, we look at construction mitigation, sort of making sure that it didn't disrupt lives too much. We look at meanwhile spaces, you know, the empty shops and how do they get filled. And that's becoming more and more important these days when um, with businesses um, turning over in spaces and you don't want empty shops. And um, one of the most exciting things really is looking at the foodscape across all the projects that we've got to make sure that people eat well or they can eat well where they live. So that's part of the work um, that Panuku does and it's part of the work that I'm involved with. And why is it that food is such a cornerstone when it comes to kind of regenerating these spaces or creating great neighborhoods? Well, everybody's got to eat. Um, and that, and, and food it's common ground, isn't it? It, 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 transcend, it transcends time, it transcends wealth, age and place, but it gives a voice to all our differences. Um, and I, I, I think that even in this post-COVID environment where we're all working from home and our neighbourhoods become more important to us, that the availability of food that we actually like to eat that we that we that that fuels our health is readily available closer to us, and I think that that's what that's why food in neighbourhoods are critical. It's where you can buy it. Um, it's where you can buy ingredients to cook it. Um, but apart from that, it's who you meet um, and the community that surrounds food that becomes as important as the food itself sometimes I think that's true I mean I feel like for example if I look at I'm based out in South Auckland and the other day I was like oh I'll just you know get some takeout or whatever but the only takeout is just your bigger establishments while I'd love to see more of the kind of local one-off eateries that you'd perhaps get in like a Ponsonby or you know some of those other neighborhoods where food has kind of become their kind of unique point yeah you got to start somewhere and that's that's one of the the key uh, objectives of the kitchen project is to actually encourage um, independent food businesses to actually start up be able to survive in South Auckland and in West Auckland as well because we absolutely recognize that there's a shortage of uh, of of access to neighbor good neighborhood food um, and it's so important that the right, the right sorts of food businesses actually do start up.
and take hold and survive. I mean, the average, it's, you know, one out of three food businesses don't survive past four, four years. And that's scary, you know, that's really scary. Um, and so the availability of healthy food then becomes even more important in, in um, it's ironical, but in, in South Auckland, which is actually the food bowl. You know, there's some wonderful produce that's grown south uh, um, in the south. And, um, you know, where is it? Why is it not more visible than it is now? And so it, it, it's so important that, you know, through through Panuku, that if we can actually have even a small influence about how these things actually work, it's a, it's a fight worth fighting for. And let's talk a bit more about, like, community markets. Why do you feel they're so important? I think that the role of a market has got many – it is multifaceted. It is absolutely – it's a place to buy food to buy ingredients, but um, the way that we look at it, um, there, there, are, there are at least six important things that you actually have to remember about markets. The first thing is that it actually brings together a diverse group of people. You think about, um, well, my recent, most recent visit was to Takapuna Markets, and, um, you know, you have the arts and crafts, you've got vegetables, you've got prepared food, you've got bric-a-brac, you've got car boot, um, car boot sales. Um, and there are so many different diverse people who actually come together um, because, firstly, they enjoy the atmosphere of a the market, they enjoy, they've come to actually buy totally different things. And all these people would come together regardless of, who they were, where they've come from, how much they earn. They all come together and and that's um, that's a very rich environment for it to be. Um, it, it it activates public space. Uh, you know, the, 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 the car park in Takapuna is activated and full of people rather than cars um, when the market's there. Um, the same thing up in Pukkohi. Um, in seventh, uh, in Massiev, where on Saturdays, you know, they activate public spaces. Um, they also they also link the local economy together. You know, they they, they link the rural and the local economies together, and and there's nothing more relevant than that. Um, in Pukekohe, we've got all the uh, vegetable producers and around. Um, and they bring all their local produce to the market. I've got a lovely story where Alan Fong, who actually owns Fresh Growers, you know, you see all their vegetables in supermarkets. Yeah. That's been a multi-generational business. And his mum is 92. And, you know, part of the business from, from when she was young. And she would actually visit all their gardens and and, and processing plants, collect up her, her bunch of vegetables and appear at the Pukekohe markets of a morning on Saturday morning. And Mrs. Fong sells vegetables at that market and she's been doing it for years and years and years and years. Mm. And so, it, you know, it links the producers to the local economy and it's such an important thing. Um, it promotes public health because you we give they give it, um, access to 
fresh fruits and vegetables, um, and they encourage people to take them home and cook them, which is a great thing. Economic opportunity to small businesses. They, they renew downtowns and neighborhoods too. There are so many, um, there, there's so much that markets can do, um, and we need more of them. That's true. I remember, so I had a part-time job where I used to go out to the Otara markets and um, I had to kind of, this was back when Pixie Photo used to be around in Warehouse and um, I used to kind of convince people to come take their family photos and my boss told me, oh, go to the Otara market. And that was my first kind of glimpse of, you know, really the kind of Maori Pacifica culture because for otherwise, you know, just a girl kind of growing up in Howick, um, but it was predominantly at that time uh, Indian and Chinese community. I hadn't really come across kind of firsthand to the Maori Pacifica culture and I just loved going actually over there because they had beautiful music and just totally different food that I actually hadn't spotted in Auckland otherwise. Mm, that's right. Um, the, the, the variety of, of food, prepared food, that you wouldn't have otherwise is, um, yeah, I think in Tapuna Market, which is a small little market in Falls Car Park in Henderson, uh, there is, um, what is it, Samoan Donuts? Oh my God, they're amazing, and <laughs> they sell out really, really quickly. Um, and you can actually smell, you, you know, it's that tactile thing of being able to um, touch the vegetables instead of trying to figure out the quality of the vegetables through polystyrene wrap in a mm. supermarket. You know, to being able to smell the cooking food when you're hungry and it draws you together. Um, mm. to eat it. Markets are not a new construct. That's the other thing. There have been markets from the day that God was a boy, girl. Um, mm. You know, it's in the early days, in the 1800s, there were markets. They're, they're, they're not a new construct. And um, somehow or another, they've become a little endangered, I think, and we need to do something about making sure that they will survive into the future. Mm, that's true and I think for me some of my earliest memories was my grandpa was going to the market like at least in India um, where these kind of bigger supermarkets don't really exist or maybe just coming in kind of now going to the market was you know this kind of fun experience like you said it was about smelling the coriander learning how fish is gutted out and how do you choose the right fish and it really creates that strong bond with the food you eat, which kind of doesn't when you're just kind of aimlessly walking down the aisles. <laughs> I know. Um, my grandmother um, sold food um, to feed the household after my grandfather retired in Singapore, and I lived with them. And um, she would make um, three things, bachang, which was a uh, dumpling, wrapped in pandan or pandanus leaves with the pork force meat. Bunzu si, which is a beautiful leavened, um, very, a brioche style bun that had pork mince in it. Mm. And gui salat, which was a, um, it's a dessert. And it's got, it, it's steamed in a tray, glutinous rice, coconut infused in the bottom with a thick layer of green, beautiful green custard on the top. You'd see it in some of the um, Asian food stalls here too. And she sold that every day um, 
and orders will come in by phone. Mm-hmm. Um, and every morning, uh, they'd go, somebody from the house will go to walk to the market, which is just around the corner from our house in Singapore, mm-hmm. um, and buy everything to cook on that day. So everything was bone spanking fresh, made a la minute, um, and then ride home in the trip, in the, in the trishore, uh, because, you know, there was just too much to carry to, 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 to walk home with it. And, mm. and, you know, those are markets. I remember the smells. I remember the noises. I mean, you can hear the chickens cattling in the, in the cages. Um, you know, it was, and you can hear the storeholders yelling and bartering. And it was just, it was gritty, granular living mm. um, that, you know, you just don't see today. Yeah, I think I must say, though, that the markets are one of the awesome things I love about Singapore. Like I love, so my dad lives in Singapore and I have spent a little time there. And I just love how every kind of neighborhood has its own, you know, like local market. And yeah, I just, I love how well planned their neighborhoods are. Definitely. Um, Yeah, they, but then they're allowed to. (laughs) (laughs) I think in the in the um, you know how food halls started in the early days. I remember, um, I think I can't quite remember the exact dates, but in the fifties there was this movement by the Singapore government to actually move the hawkers who were lining the streets into um, into food halls, and and so uh, because they recognised the health and safety. Uh, requirements of yeah, of being on a, on a on a side street was actually difficult to control, mm. and but they're also at that stage is really in, interesting, which you know we need to think really hard about is how they actually help these independent businesses to survive, and what they did really was to hold the rent mm. in these food courts for two generations, so they didn't. They didn't hold the rent for 20, 30 years. They held it for two generations. And that was really smart because what they, that, that meant was that the skills were passed from one generation to the other. Mm-hmm. And it meant that family businesses were developed. That's true. And they preserved the skills across the generation. So it was a really smart thing to do. And it also meant that the businesses could survive as well. Um, yeah. And it was a, it, it was a ingenious way of thinking about how to preserve some sorts of culture in, back then. Agreed, agreed. Well, I hope we get uh, more variety into our food court soon. But um, I certainly think we're very lucky when it comes to our markets and the kind of diversity. I feel like <laughs> if you hop from one market to another, you can kind of see the food and, you know, the produce changing, which is amazing. Mm. What I'd like to see is it because at the moment markets are generally what a weekend construct, yeah. right? I'd quite like to see markets um, become a little bit more than just weekends and being just weekend elective activity, but more of a daily necessity because I think that that's when we can actually see a true change in our foodscape. That's true. That's true. Um, I mean, I know for my grandmom going to the market in the evening was like part of her 
you know, like routine, like I have to go <laughs> go get some fresh vegetables. And it was a thing that even long after she retired, something she looked forward to. It was like her little social experience that she could do. There's something about um something about being happy in the neighborhood close to where you live. Um, you know, and then one of the examples I always quote is, you know, when you walk into a cafe which is near your house, um, that you've been going to for a long time, and the barista behind the counter looks at you and he he or she starts making your coffee before you even order it. And, you know, you feel great, don't you? I mean, you just feel like I belong. Um, And this is where I live, and I'm really happy. And just that small little interaction actually makes a difference to your day. It makes a difference to my day. Um, Is that, you know, I belong in this neighborhood, and that's what we want neighborhoods to be, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, where people connect with each other. Yeah. So just as we wrap up, I want to ask you a question, um, given your long food history in Auckland, that, you know, like trends keep evolving and people's priorities change. So if you had to look into our future, what do you think would be like food trends maybe 10 years down the line or what would you want them to be? I think what I would want them to be, um, because I'm not a crystal ball um, (laughs) gazer, but what I would love to see is is a, a larger lens on our indigenous food. I'd love to see a clearer lens on our Maori and Pacific Island food because there's so much to offer. Um, I'd like to see people cooking more at home um, mm. so that they can enjoy. I mean, we've got some of the best produce in the world here, um, and I'd love to see young people getting to understand how to actually cook with these wonderful ingredients and produce that we've got. Um, I think that eating healthy, uh, eating healthily, eating for health must also be very, very important because we've really got to stop trying to cure the illnesses and start to prevent them. And so, you know, diet diet is such an important part of that. Um, and um, I, I, and I like to see the continuation of the honesty and the authenticity of the food that we actually have here in Auckland um, and in New Zealand. We are so fortunate, and I just don't want to see us destroy that. Mm. That sounds amazing, and um, I hope all of it comes true. Yeah. So just before I let you go, Connie, we're going to do my favorite part of the show, which is called Fast Food 5. So that's five fast questions about food. So are you ready? Yep. Okay. So number one, Auckland's best-kept foodie secret. Best-kept foodie secret? Mm. Oh, um, I think the best-kept foodie secret is there are so many. <laughs> you really have to pick one. Just one for today, yeah. and then Just and one. then when you take me on that three-hour tour, we yeah. can we can do all the others. <laughs> okay. Well, I do, well I don't know how much of a secret it is, but um, I completely adore Xiaolongbao. You know what okay. Xiaolongbao is? This little dumplings that um, is made with, uh, and when you steam it. It's soup in the middle of it, and um, the purists uh, make these dumplings with 18 pleats. 
So it's not oh, an wow. easy thing to do. And it's not an easy thing to actually make them with the soup and steam them with the soup um, in it without the whole thing bursting. Mm. And I love a place called Taste and Memory in, in, in Mount Albert. And I think that that's the best food secret on this. Yeah, I must must go there. Mm-hmm. All right. So, for someone looking to cook more Asian food on a regular basis, what is the one ingredient that you think they must keep in their pantry, or the one that you always find yourself reaching out for? One again. One. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's um. Well, for for me, it's uh, rice, garlic, and soy sauce. But that's three. That's all right. I'll let I'll let it pass. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love I love oh, garlic and chili. Cool. So, for someone visiting Auckland, what would you say is the one place, like one dining place, they should go to, which is really reflective of Auckland? Um, I'd go to a market. Hmm. I'd go to a market. I'd go to any market that you can get your hands on and talk to the people, look at the ingredients, try the food. Mm. I'd go to a market. Oh, that's a good answer. I was I was thinking you'd say a restaurant, but I agree with you, actually, yeah. a market. Um, that's where we'll at least get a glimpse of the amazing food diversity we have here. That's right. Mm. All right. What's the best piece of advice you were given when i mean either when you owned and operated your own space or just within the food um you know all the various roles you've had is there like one piece of advice that you have really held to heart well miss miriam jane gruber was a, a missionary from the United States, who lived in Singapore as she was growing up. And and I knew her when I was six years old um, until the time I left, so for 10 years until I, I left Singapore to come here. And she said to me, Connie, or Constance, that she called me then, she says to me, say what you know and say what is true. Say what you know and say what is true and you'll always get along in life. Oh, that's a really good one. Yeah, and I've never forgotten it, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you're trying to answer tricky questions like what you've been asking me <laughs> or when you are putting a plan together or when you're writing a business case or when you're thinking about a fascinating thing to do and you always think I always go back to say what you know and say what is true and it saved a lot saved mm-hmm. me a lot of times okay that's definitely I'm gonna note it down I agree with you mm. um Great. And last question. The one meal you tend to cook weekly or fortnightly, you know, it's in your regular roster of like the one the things that you cook on a daily basis. Daily basis? Um, daily basis, I poach eggs. But um, on a weekly basis, when my family comes home, Hainanese mm-hmm. chicken rice. It's the staple. Mm. Mm. I love a good Hainanese chicken rice. Yeah. Mm. It's, All important, right. it's an important construct in life, I tell you. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Connie, for coming on the show. It's been just amazing talking to you. And um, like I told you before, I was having a real fangirl moment and you've answered all my questions. So thank you so much for that. Oh, you're very welcome. And thank you for having me. For listening to the Kiwi Foodcast, brought to you by Podcasts New Zealand. Be sure to listen in next time for another helping of Kiwi food stories.